weeks ago. We were in two weeks ago. We were in Rosh Hashul, um having our conversation, um, and I just feel like um, I just wanted to um, come back from America. I, I was there for a few days, and um, and I was. You know, before I went, I was very hesitant to leave for many reasons, and then very hesitant to go for many reasons. But when I was there, why? Because I just felt like they in America don't understand us. We live our lives here. We're, you know, we're dealing with all the things that we're dealing with, and and what do, what can they possibly relate to from there? And um, and upon they send bags, duffel bags, and gear, and they come and they and they spend their time volunteering. Um, and I kind of felt like that was where it ended. But um, once I was there, I realized I can actually add in Hebrew here, which I couldn't do there. That's good. Um, and I really saw people very much, very much connected, very much feeling, very much davening with sincerity. And like everybody, they, they really feel like we do here. And it was amazing. I couldn't wait to come back and say this in like a public forum because it's, um, it's important that we know that. It's important that everybody here <coughs> understands that really our, our brothers and sisters in America and in Kutzlaritz, the cloud, really do feel pain like we do. So, um, and I also feel that under certain leaderships as Roshai Shechter, that they are getting the proper insights of what it really is, um, what the true story is. And there's a lot, a lot, a lot of behind-the-scenes work going on for Am Yisrael, mechutz la'aretz. And Rav Shai is really one of these people that is doing a lot of behind-the-scenes work and spending a lot of time and energy really fending for Am Yisrael in Eretz Yisrael. And I think that really needs a lot of recognition and a lot of support because there's a lot that goes on there. And I just want to say a public thank you on behalf of all of us for that. And I, I when someone asks me like about, this is a little off topic, when someone asks me like about a shit, I can never like say like where they went to school, what their resume says, I can just tell you about the person. Because that's all I know, like from interaction with a person. And I can just really say only the most, it's, a, it's an honor, it's a privilege, hakol. I feel nishikot me'akadosh baruchu that I'm um, zoche to uh, have a kesher with Roshai and, and, uh, and all of us here. So thank you. Thank you, everyone. I'm very, very humbled to be here, and I appreciate all of you coming out. To be honest, uh, Jennifer, you are extremely gracious in your words. I wish all of them were accurate. Um, it's not... You had asked me to come speak here before anything happened to your family. And I told you at the time that I really was not comfortable speaking when families in Eretz Yisrael are living through an experience that I cannot relate to. And I said that I was not comfortable coming here because I just don't think that anything I would say would be of value or of meaning because I really don't understand. I wish I really understood, even though I have nephews and brothers-in-law and family members who are in the army and 
I'm trying to be as sensitive and understanding as I can be, but there is no way that we in Chutz Laaretz, who are not as privileged as you are to live in Eretz Yisrael, there is no way that we have any sort of understanding of the situation as you see it from your vantage point. And all I can say is, Anachnu Geim Bachem. We are proud that we have so many beloved brothers and sisters in Eretz Yisrael who are doing the job that all of us are really supposed to be doing. Um, I continue to ask myself every day, is it just an excuse that I'm still living in America or is it really valid? At what point does that tip? At what point do we say, if the leaders leave, maybe everybody will follow or maybe we say, if there are still followers, then we have to lead? I don't know. It's a good question and we all do a lot of soul searching. At least a lot of serious Jews in America are trying to figure this out. Nothing to do with the war now, but for many, many years have been trying to think about that question very seriously and I appreciate having the opportunity to be here and just spending time with people who I love and appreciate from afar that I don't have the opportunity to say thank you to. And I, I really feel the American Jewish community and Jews all over the world owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to all those who are courageous enough to make Aliyah and to do it with all of its complexities and with all of its challenges. And of course, yes, there are great blessings of living in Eretz Israel, but we all know that there are challenges. And I can't say you are shluchim because you're a lot more than that. You're a lot more than that. And usually a shaliach is somebody who was appointed or sent. Nobody appointed you. You did this on your own. And it's something that I personally am jealous of and extremely proud of. So I'm humbled to be here. And I thank you all for coming out. Of course, this evening shir is dedicated Li'ilu Nishmas, your beloved son, Binyamin Meir Ben Ze'ev David. And that was obviously a devastating loss, not only to this community, but as many, many Jews in America have connected to this story and feel a very sensitive place in their hearts not only for the many stories that are going on, but in particular to this one because of the messages that you have given over and the strength that you have shared with so many others. I felt there was no greater of a way to spend my two nights in Eretz Yisrael. I'm going back tomorrow morning and I landed on Monday evening, so I feel there's no greater way to spend my time than to honor Binyamin's memory and what a schus it is for me. And we hope that his neshama We'll have an aliyah from whatever we grow from in any way and all that we do, and that he will be a melitz yosher on all of us who need such a great and tremendous Yeshua. Uh, so the topic that I decided to talk about this evening is one that I hope will be relevant, will resonate with everyone. You know, in the experience and the journey of all of our lives, we have mitzvahs that we are confronted with, and some of them are more difficult than others. Each person has their own threshold has their own point where they say, this is a big challenge for me. This is very, very difficult. This is demanding. This is complicated. The Rebona Shalom expects this of me, but it's something that I don't find to be so easy. So for some, it could be a proper Shemir Shabbos, and for others, it could be in other areas, Zahiris Balash and Hara, or so many other examples that we can give, and everybody has their own personal issue that they find to be somewhat of a challenge. I think all of us, although we have our own private and personal individual obstacles that we overcome or that we struggle with or that we need to contend with. Um, I think we can all agree that the mitzvah that so many of you are currently engaged in is one that not only is difficult on a personal level, but also on a communal level. 
Going to a Mechamas mitzvah is one of the 613 mitzvahs HaTorah like any other. The problem is that the stakes are so much higher. And the price that we are all willing to pay, I shouldn't say we all, that you are all prepared to pay for a Mechamas mitzvah is something that we don't really find by so many other mitzvahs. And that's why I felt it was an opportunity for us to talk a little bit about what is the Torah Hashkafa toward difficult mitzvahs. And I want to use for this discussion a little bit of a test case. I think talking about Mechamas mitzvah might be a little bit intense. Nobody needs to be reminded that there's a Mechamas mitzvah going on and the price that unfortunately too many have paid. But to talk a little bit about difficult mitzvahs and what the Torah itself unpacks when we deal with a difficult mitzvah. So let's turn to a Mishnah and Mesechah's Bikurim. The Mishnah assumes that Bikurim is something which we look at as a very difficult mitzvah to observe. From the outside, it seems that Bikurim is very simple. I'm a farmer, I have produce, I bring it to Yerushalayim, it doesn't sound like a big deal. Well, that's because it's easy for us to get to Yerushalayim. But play back the, uh, the recording a little bit and think about in the days when it was not so easy to go to Yerushalayim. And it took a farmer up to two weeks to get to Yerushalayim, two weeks traveling there, then two weeks traveling back. The Gemara says that the maximum amount of time from any area in Eretz Yisrael would take you two weeks of travel time in either direction to get to Yerushalayim. So imagine you are that farmer in the Galil, or you are that farmer somewhere down in the south, and you have to take off four weeks of work to bring your fruits to Yerushalayim. That's not an easy thing to do. So it's a little bit of a lighter experience of a mitzvah than Melchemah's mitzvah, but I want to take some of the messages out of that and try to understand them just a little bit. So the Mishnah tells us in the third parak in Bikurim that as they were going up to Yerushalayim, Hashar Holech Lifneim, the farmers would travel in somewhat of a procession. And there would be a big parade going along the highway, along the route up to Yerushalayim. And they would have a lot of fanfare, a big commotion. The Karnav Mitzupozav, they used to line these animals with gold. They would put some kind of crown around the head of the animal as well. They would have a marching band with drums and flutes, the Mishnah says. Once they came to Yerushalayim, all of the shopkeepers used to come out to greet these farmers. And it says that regardless of what kind of individual you were, regardless of what kind of parnasa you had, all of the delegates, all of the representatives, every deputy from Yerushalayim came out into the streets to greet these farmers. Now, says the Mishnah, which I want to get back to a little bit later, In proportion to how prominent you were as a farmer, that's the kind of reception you got when you came to Yerushalayim. So if you were a very well-known, I don't know exactly how the metrics worked, but if you were a very prominent individual and you walked into Yerushalayim and you were there with your Bikurim, then you would have a big fanfare. You would have a lot of people coming out to celebrate you. And maybe if you were a little bit simpler, some people would come out, but you wouldn't have the same as others. I want to get back to that soon. And then we're told that they would come out, all the vendors, all the merchants in Yerushalayim would then give a bracha, and that's the way this is described. So the first question is, why is it? The Gemara asks in Masechus Kiddushin, it's the same Gemara that can be found in Masechus Chulin. The Gemara asks, why is it that specifically when you have the mitzvah of Bikurim, we have people that are coming out of their jobs, walking out onto the streets, greeting these farmers in the middle of the town in Yerushalayim. Why was that important and why was that necessary? Whereas we do not find that every time somebody wakes up in the morning and goes to Daman Shachar's in the shul, everybody has to stop what they're doing and go stand up in their honor. So what is this all about? The Gemara gives two interpretations to, uh, to explain, to understand where this comes from. Number one, says the Gemara, you have to realize and you have to appreciate 
that this is an extremely cumbersome, difficult, exhausting mitzvah for a farmer to take off potentially four weeks of work to then travel all the way to Yerushalayim and be able to do this mitzvah bikurim was very, very difficult. And as a result of that, the Gemara tells us, we have to show kedei shalotei machshilam liyasid lavo. Everybody likes a little bit of kavod. Even if you're a great person, everybody likes a little bit of kavod. And therefore, says the, says the Gemara, we have to try to encourage people to want to do this again. What's a good way to encourage someone to do something that's very difficult? When we give you a lot of kavod. So it feels very nice. You walk into Yerushalayim, everybody's stopping everything they're doing, they're coming out to greet you in the streets. That will encourage me that as difficult as this mitzvah is, next year I'm going to want to do it again. That should give me the impetus. That should encourage and stimulate me to want to be involved in such an activity once again. So there's an interesting discussion in Halacha. Seth uh, reached out to me after Jen reached out to me. He said, well, don't get the wrong impression. This is not supposed to be hashkafa. This is supposed to be halacha. Rabbi Aryeh Kohn was here two weeks ago. He gave us the hashkafa already. We're good to go. Seth's in America. Seth's, so then he told me he's in America. So I'm trying to do a little bit of both. Let's try to talk a little bit about both. But here, there's a very interesting discussion. The Gemara writes in Masechus Yuma Peches, how do we know that saving a life will override Shabbos? How do you know that that is more important than Shmir Shabbos? So it means if I have to drive someone to the hospital on a Shabbos because their life is in danger, I'm allowed to do so. Ask the Gemara, where do we know that from? Who told you that? And the answer, after a very lengthy discussion in the Gemara between a bunch of Tanaim and Amoraim, have different suggestions. So the Gemara then comes to the conclusion, we learn it from the Pasuk of V'chai Bahem. V'chai Bahem means... The greatest value in human experience is that we should have human experience, that we should be able to live. We should be able to live with the laws of the Torah. And that is how we know that Pikuach Nefesh overrides even Shabbos, which is Minha Hamuros. We would still assume that Pikuach Nefesh overrides. And the Gemara then goes further to say, even a Suffolk Pikuach Nefesh, even if someone's life is not definitely in danger, but we think it might be in danger, that would also be a good enough reason to be Mechal Shabbos. Now, so much so that the Shulchan Aruch writes, Somebody who has a shailam pikuach nefesh on Shabbos, hashoel hareza shofech damin. Somebody who hesitates and runs to the rabbi's house to go ask a shailam whether I'm allowed to go to the hospital or not, it's shvichas damin. Why? Because sometimes minutes count. Sometimes going to the rabbi's house and asking that question will cost somebody their life. And therefore the Gemara says, you have to run immediately to do whatever you can. My father once pointed out to me, the Shulchan Aruch also quotes from the Yerushalmi, that it's not only Hashol Harezah Shofet Damin, but it says Hanishal, the rabbi who is presented with the Shailah is Harezah Maguna. So my father once asked, why are you Harezah Maguna? What did I do wrong that I have a rotten person in my community that doesn't know that Pikuach Nefesh is the most important thing and they're coming to run to my house? How is that my fault? That's your fault that you don't know, but how could it be Harezah Maguna that I am bad because somebody came to ask me a question and he said it means you're a horrible rabbi. If your community doesn't know that pikuach nefesh is the most important value, it means you just have not given over the values of Jewish life. If they don't know the laws of Hilchus Lashon Hara, maybe they don't know the ins and outs of Rivas, that's excusable. But for any Jew in your community not to know that pikuach nefesh is the most important thing that we all have to be very aware of, means you're a terrible rabbi. Those are very encouraging words my father told me before I went into the Rabbanus, and they stick with me every day since. So the question that is a very highly contentious issue, when we talk about Pikuach Nefesh on Shabbos, so over the last 50 years, we know that there's been a tremendous explosion of the usage of Hatzalah services on Shabbos. And the question that Rav Moshe Feinstein and Rav Shlomo Zalman and Rav Herzog and the Chazunish 
Many of them discuss in great detail is, well, if you have a member of Hatzalah or a doctor or a nurse or a family member that drives to the hospital on Shabbos, would they be allowed to come back? They have other family members who are home. We're not talking about that somebody's in danger at home. You didn't leave little kids at home. But still, can I go home? If I went on a call on Shabbos, can I go home? Doesn't matter if it's Friday night. Doesn't matter if it's Shabbos day. Doesn't matter if I'm a doctor. Doesn't matter if I'm a volunteer. All of these very particular questions. But the bottom line, the question is the same. Am I allowed to come back after going on a call to try to save a life on Shabbos? And the answer that is very hotly debated, in Eretz Yisrael, I think many followed the Pesach of Shalom Azalman Arbach, which was a little bit more hesitant to allow the return of a volunteer to come back on Shabbos. In America, generally, we follow the Pesach of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who said that we should be allowed to come back. That's an overgeneralization. Of course, there's a lot of detail there, and different communities follow different Pesachim. Ask your own posik here in the community, but... One of the poskim that writes about this is the Chazanish. And the Chazanish explains, why would we say that it should be permissible for a doctor or for a medical professional or for a volunteer to come back on Shabbos? After all, we have enough numbers of Hatzalah here. We don't need them back. We don't need the ambulance. We don't need them. Why shouldn't they stay in the hospital? And he writes, perhaps the answer is because this is a very difficult mitzvah. We have to do something to try to encourage people to want to do a difficult mitzvah later in the future. What's going to happen? Let's play out the scenario. I work all week and I'm very exhausted and I finally come home on Leil Shabbos after a very long week and I haven't seen my children and I haven't been able to sit around with them at a table and now it's an early Shabbos. So we make Shabbos at 4 o'clock. So 5.15 I'm sitting down and I'm finally having the opportunity to be with my family. And I get a call right after Kiddush. I run off to the call. I drive the patient to the hospital, and then I'm stuck there from 6.30 until 5.30 in the afternoon on Matzah Shabbos. What's going to happen next week when I get a call? I have no interest in going. It was very nice to save a life, but I really am not interested in ruining my whole Shabbos, in not being with my children, in not spending time with family. <coughs> and as a result of that concern, the Gemara says that we have to, I'm sorry, the post can write, that we have to do something to encourage a person to want to be available to do this mitzvah again. Something that's difficult. We want to do something to make you want to do that difficult mitzvah again. And that is based on this Gemara. There's an interesting comment of the Raman Shulchan Aruch where he says, this may sound very surprising to you, but the Raman writes in Hilchus Tzedakah, Lo yispar adam Nobody should ever flaunt or advertise. You shouldn't broadcast the charity that you give. And if you do, let's say I give a contribution to some kind of cause and I put my name on it and I want my name on the building or I want my name on whatever it is that's being done. Says the Ramah, Not only do you lose the reward for what it is that you may have given, You are punished for doing such a thing. He brings a raya from the Gemara Mesechus Ksubas where the Gemara says a story about Nakdiman Ben-Gurion who was one of the Ashirim of Yerushalayim. He was a very prominent, wealthy individual, and yet a few years later we saw that his daughter was there and she had nothing to eat, and how can it be? And she was engaged in conversation and she said, yes, my father was a very prominent, wealthy, Balstaka, a great person, but everything he did was he did everything for his own self-interest. He just wanted a lot of kavod, he wanted a lot of recognition, and that is why he lost everything he had. So from there, says the Ramah, that we know one is not supposed to be misbar. So much so, the Magan Avram writes in Hilfos Fila, or Hilfos Beisach Neses, he quotes from a Sefer Hasidim, an interesting story. There was a community that wanted to build a shul. And when we build a shul, 
we don't have one person who builds a shul. Everybody takes upon themselves to give whatever X amount. We put a tax on the community and everybody builds a shul together. Says the Sefer Hasidim, this was the plan in this particular community. And one individual stepped forward and he said, I don't want anybody else to contribute. I'm going to give all the money myself. I have enough money to pay for this beautiful building. I don't want any help. The only way I'm giving the money is if it only is going to be mine and everybody else pulls back their dedications. I want that my grandchildren, he says, should walk by this building and be able to say, that's Shechter Shul. I don't want anyone to share this with me. And then Mogan Avram quotes from the Sefer Hasidim where he says that this person in the end, lo hayalo zecher. All he wanted that he should have in the future is that everybody should remember and in the end his family was wiped out because if all you care about is, are people going to be talking about me? The Onesh, says the Magan Avram, is very, very severe and very serious. So what I would like to think about is, really? Is there anybody here who has ever gone to a shul that doesn't have someone's name on it? Have you ever visited a school that doesn't have someone's name? Have you ever visited the new campus of Nefesh Benefesh in Yerushalayim and seen how many names there are on every brick? So how can this be? There are masters explicitly, when you're giving tzedakah, you have to be anonymous. You have to make sure that you take yourself out of it. So why is it that it seems all across the world, in every sector of the Jewish community, Svarim and Ashkenazim, Hasidim and Misnagdim, everyone does the same thing and nobody has any hesitation. How do you explain that? And the answer is, you look at the next line in the Ramah where he says that we have come to an understanding that it is very hard to give staka and people need to be encouraged to do so, as wealthy as a person may be. And sometimes people have a mistaken understanding. It doesn't matter how much money you have, it's not easy to give something away that you worked hard for. I don't want to give it away. It's mine. I deserve it. It belongs to me. And you have to overcome that hurdle of wanting to give it away. And therefore, says the Ramah, we know that human nature is such that if we don't give you the opportunity to be encouraged for what it is that you've done, for the sacrifice that you've given, you're not going to want to give next time. And it's Badaku Manusa. We know that it's true. You give somebody a little bit of kavod, you put their name on a building, you highlight their contribution, and we know Either it encourages others to want to give or it encourages this individual to want to give next time as well. And that is also learned from this Gemara where we find when you have a difficult mitzvah, it is something that all of us have to recognize because we want to make sure that people are encouraged to do that once again. The second reason the Gemara gives is because Chaviva mitzvah b'shaita. Says the Gemara, while somebody is engaged in a mitzvah like bringing the Bikurim to Yerushalayim, we have to show respect for the mitzvah itself, not because we want to encourage you. Of course you're going to want to come back to give Bikurim next year. Why wouldn't you? What a beautiful experience. But rather, says the Gemara, we make sure to do this because we show our respect for one who is in the middle of observing a mitzvah. And the Bartanura famously writes in Masechus Bikurim on this Mishnah that this expands way beyond the mitzvah of Bikurim. This concept of Chaviva Mitzvah Vishaita goes much further than this specific example that the Mishnah gives. So for example, you ever wonder when somebody attends a bris milah. So they call out kvater and everybody stands up. Why are we standing up? Most people think mistakenly that we're standing up for the baby. Why are we standing up for the baby? The baby has not done anything good in his or her life. Right? Baby hasn't done a thing. Why would you stand up for the baby? What? What did the baby do? All the baby did so far is keep the parents up at night. A lack of keep it of aim. Baby hasn't done a thing. So why are we standing up? The answer says the Bartanur is we're not standing up for the baby. We're standing up for the parents who are doing the mitzvah for all those who are the nosei ha-tinok, all those who are involved in this beautiful mitzvah of Rismila, we're standing out of respect to them, not out of respect to the child. Do you ever go to a wedding and everybody stands up for the chasen and kala? Why are we standing up? 
I don't particularly have great respect for every wedding I go to. Sometimes the chasen or kala are very extraordinary, but that's unusual. So why do we stand up for a chasen and kala? The answer says the Bartinura, some think it's because chasen dome lamelech, really not the case, because he's not yet a melech, he's not yet a chasen. He didn't yet get officially engaged. So as far as everyone is concerned in halacha, right now when you're walking down the aisle, you're a nothing other than a young man, and she is a young woman. You're not a chasen, she's not a kala. My father, I think, says that Rav Salavechik used to be makbid not to call them chasen and kala, because he said once he called them chasen and kala, then they think negia doesn't apply anymore, and all the other restrictions don't apply. Yichud is not a problem. If you let them know you're the Meshudach and the Meshudeches, what does that mean? Nothing. You're the Meshudach and the Meshudeches, that means your status has not changed halakhically at all. So why do we stand up when someone's going to a chuppah? The answer is because we're excited about the fact that you're about to observe, you're about to be makayim, a very important mitzvah of Kiddush Minisuin, of getting married, of Puravu. We're standing up out of respect for that, not at all out of respect for the Chassan and Kala who may be outstanding people, but that's not what it is. It actually reminds me, nothing to do with the shir, but just an amazing story. There was a young man who once went to Rav Pam. He was a great Rosh Hashiva in New York. And he asked him, you know, Chazal say, how long do I have the opportunity to keep that status? And Rav Pam told him, so long as you treat your wife like a queen, you can continue to be considered a king as well. So I thought it was an amazing, an amazing story and an amazing piece of advice. Back to our topic here. Somebody asked my father recently, so when a chayal walks into the room, do we all need to stand up for him? My father said, yes. How could we not? Is he any less than the person who is bringing Bikurim, who we're standing up for at the time when he's observing his mitzvah? Is he any less than the individual who is going to bring their child to a brismila? Is he any different than those Hever Kadisha members? When we walk into a Levaya, they say, all rise. Why are we all standing up? Again, here in Eretz Israel, I don't think anyone... I don't know. I don't know how it works exactly. But in America, it's very formal and everyone sits. And then they make an announcement, everyone stand up. Why are we standing up? I had no respect for the person when they were alive. I wasn't so respectful of them when they were alive. So why am I standing up now? The answer is because the Chever Kadisha are involved in the unbelievable mitzvah of Kura Sames, of doing that unbelievable Chesed Shalemes. And as a result of that, we stand up in their honor. And that's really what this is all about. And says the Gemara, that's the second way to understand why it is that we stand up for the Mevi Bikurim, because we want to remember Chaviva Mitzvah B'Shaita. We need to show respect for somebody who's engaged actively in a Mitzvah. Now let's move on to another important point that the Mishnah raises, and that is an interesting line. So the Mishnah says, Based on how prominent you may have been as a farmer, that is the kind of reception that you got when you came to Yerushalayim. Now ask the Yerushalmi, V'chiyesh katan v'gadol b'Yisrael, what does that mean if you are more prominent? How do we determine prominence when it comes to the mitzvah bikurim? How much money you had? How much money you made this year? How much produce you're selling? How much bikurim you're bringing? What does that mean? Do we have a concept of katan v'gadol b'Yisrael? That doesn't exist. We believe that every Jew who is bringing the bikurim to Yerushalayim is equally valuable, is equally valued. So what does that mean when the Mishnah says, that determined based on how impressive and how important you are, that's the kind of response you got when you came to Yerushalayim. And that's why the Yerushalmi kind of rejects that. And that is a very important point as well. The Gemara says in Masechus Kiddushin that there's a certain mode of conduct that we expect out of a community leader. So say, for example, I'm the mayor of Beit Shemesh. So maybe it used to be that I behaved in a certain way. I don't know, is somebody here the mayor of Beit Shemesh? 
I know you. What? Oh, I didn't. I didn't mean to get involved. I, mean, I was just giving an example. So, um, let's say I have a public position, and I am now elected to be the official who represents the entire community. So maybe it used to be that when there was work that had to be done underneath my car, I would crawl under the car and I would fix all the screws and I would do whatever needed to be done. But now it's not befitting of a person who has that kind of position to be doing that. Says the Gemara Parnes. We assume if you have an individual who's in a position of leadership, they have to behave in a certain way, and there's certain things that they shouldn't be doing in front of others. We're not talking about inappropriate things, but things that don't stand for the great respect that you hold. You carry the community, you represent the community, and therefore you have to behave and react in a certain way. And that is quoted in Shulchan Aruch. However, the Gemara says, what about that mayor of Beit Shemesh, whoever it's going to be? who has to also build a maka on top of their roof. Now, it's not so easy to build a maka. You're going to be sweating. You're going to have to put on your gym clothing. You're going to have to be out in the sun all day. It's not going to be so simple. So, should I hire somebody else to build a maka the same way I would hire somebody else to fix my car? Says the Gemara, no. Maka is a mitzvah. When it comes to a mitzvah, we don't care how important you think you are. We don't care what kind of position you hold. We don't believe that there is any inequality when it comes to the performance of a mitzvah. All of us are given the same opportunity to observe mitzvahs throughout our lives, and all of us should be treated equally when we do so. And that is what the Gemara says. And along those lines, the uh, Mishnah Brewer quotes from the Chavas Yar. Chavas Yar was Rabbi Yar Bachrach, one of the great Gedolim in the 1600s. He points out that there was once a wedding where there was a, a request from the Chassan and Kala that the rabbi of the community should come and sing songs or play music for the Chassan and Kala in their honor. And uh, he was very uncomfortable. He said, usually I'm invited to a wedding to come and be the Masada Kedushin. And now I'm being invited to the wedding to be the band. That's not usually my job. And he felt very uncomfortable. Is this really something that I should be doing? It's not up to the standard of what I'm normally seen as doing at a wedding. And the Chavaz responded, what can possibly be wrong with that? You have a mitzvah of chasa mekala. You have a mitzvah l'sameach otam. You have a mitzvah to be m'sameach l'chasa mekala. And you're given that opportunity. You're going to say no. So what? That you're a prominent person. So what? That you're the rabbi. So what? That usually they call you to do other things. But right now, if this is going to bring simcha, then that's your mitzvah. And that's what you should do. And you should have no hesitation at all. I remember, I'm sure many of you know, uh, there, was, there was somebody who went to MTA. I'm, his name is escaping me now. But I remember that he went from MTA many, many years ago and he came to learn the Mir Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. And there's a picture at his wedding. He was the captain of the basketball team. What's his name? I don't know. Somebody here must know him. He was the captain of the basketball team at MTA, and Reb Nassim Tzvi Finkel came to his wedding because he had learned in the Mir Yeshiva for many years. He ended up marrying a girl from Eretz Yisrael. They got married here. Nassim Tzvi came to the wedding. In the middle of the wedding, there's a picture of him standing in the middle of the dance floor with a basketball, dribbling a basketball to be Misamech Lechassim. And that, to me, was always an amazing picture. It's not in the biography, but it's an amazing picture because it shows. So you're the biggest Rosh Hashiva in the world? You have thousands of Talmidim? But right now, your mitzvah is to be Misamech Lechassan. And if somebody told you that dribbling a basketball will make him happy, then that's a great thing to do. That's exactly what the Chavaz Yar means, just with a more common example that we might be used to. But that's what the Gemara says. In fact, one of the Talmidim of the Briskarav records a story that there was once a bris in the um, family of the Briskarav, and of course, all the Gedolim of Yerushalayim came to attend the bris, and they all wanted to participate. And the Briskarav turned to each one of them, and he said, okay, of course, we're all together. We're not just going to sit here and have a nice time. Everyone's going to share some Debrei Torah. So he goes to the first great person who was there and he says, can you please stand up and share some Debrei Torah with everyone here? So he says, sure. He stands up and he says, you know, it's such a kavod to be here at the bris. 
of a grandson or a great-grandson of the Briskarov, and it's amazing to be in such company. And the Briskarov said, that's enough, you can sit down. And he said, what, what did I say wrong? I didn't even get started. He said, why is my grandchild's bris any more prominent or any more relevant or important than anyone else's grandchild? We all have the same equal mitzvah that HaKadosh Baruch Hu instructed all of us to do. And we don't believe that yesh katan v'gadol Yisrael. When we have the mitzvah of bris milah, when we have the opportunity to perform a mitzvah, all of us are given the same opportunity and we all should be respected equally for what it is that we're doing. So the Shari Tshuva and Hilchaz Lulav writes a story, if I remember correctly, he tells that there's a story about a shul. I don't know if there's commotion in the shul. Ever happens once in a while? Not here. I live in a community. Once in a while, sometimes there is some commotion in the shul. Maybe we just have more people, so it just you know, calls for that. I don't know. And you, start, and you turn around and you're wondering what's going on and why is this happening? Maybe we shouldn't turn around. We should just let people be. But, you know, we have a tendency to turn around and to look and to see. So the Shari Tshuva writes, this is not a new custom. This is not something that was created in our generation. This is an old minute that we fight in shul and people scream at each other. So what happened? We don't fight. We, we have lovely conversations with one another, sometimes in the shul. And people have differences of opinion in very loving ways. That was the right way to say it. So the Shari Tshuva writes the story that one year, it was Cholamayit Sukkis or Yantiv of Sukkis at some point, and he hears a big commotion in the back of Shul, and he couldn't understand what was going on, so he turns around, and he sees that two people in the Shul are fighting with each other. So he goes over and he says, it's the middle of davening. What are you, what are you fighting about? So he says, well, I'll tell you why. This guy, nobody has a Lulav Anesrik this year. We couldn't get, we couldn't figure out how anyone would be able to deliver a Lulav Anesrik. The entire community went a Sukkis without a Dalad meeting. And this man comes to shul, the first day of Sukkot, with his own Dalad Minim, and he's all excited, and he puts a big silver case around his esrog, and he shows up and puts it down on the table for everyone to see. And this neighbor of his turned to him and he said, listen, I don't know how you got this, and I'm not sure how much money you paid for it, but I'm just telling you, if there's only going to be one Dalad Minim in our shul, it's not going to be used by you, it's going to go to the rough. And they got in a big fight, and he said, why should the rough be entitled to the Dalad Minim? I'm the one who bought it. If he wanted it so badly, he should have spent money and he should have traveled out of the community to go find it. But he didn't. So I did. So it's mine. And back and forth, they're having this fight. And it's pretty awkward when you turn to the Rav and ask him whether he's deserving of the Dalaminim over the person in the Shul. But they turn to the Sharit Shuvah and they asked him, so what are you saying? He said, he's right. He's right. Why is my mitzvah of Dalaminim any more important than his? It's true, he said. When we have a mitzvah that is incumbent upon all of us collectively... Let's say the mitzvah of Kriya Satorah. So when you have a mitzvah that all of us need to do, so then we're mechabit, someone who is unique. We as a community decide who we're going to put up. But when all of us have individual mitzvahs that we need to do, there should be no distinction, no differentiation drawn between one individual who has to do the mitzvah and another. All of us have the same opportunity and the same obligation. And therefore he says that his psak was that this individual should keep it and should in fact not give it to him at all. I want to close with one final issue about this Mishnah, I know that everybody has a lot of other things to do, and Marav to Davin, I'm not here to hold anybody up. So let me just point out one final thing that is discussed here. The Mishnah writes in Masechah's Bikurim that bringing the Bikurim to Yerushalayim was not only the act of traveling to Yerushalayim and dropping it off by the Kohen. You had to come to the Beis Hamikdash. You had to recite a whole bunch of Psukim, and there was a ceremony that took place in the Beis Hamikdash. So says the Mishnah, the way it used to be was, somebody who walks into the Beis HaMikdash and has to say all these psukim, if he knew how to read Chumash, so we would give him a Chumash and tell him, read these psukim. Let's say he was illiterate, let's say he did not know how to read, so then the Gemara says, 
if somebody was enio de alikros, then makrinoso. We would say word for word and tell them exactly what they should be saying. Says the Gemara, that's extremely humiliating. Imagine I'm the farmer who comes, who doesn't have a background, who doesn't have an education. I'm waiting on the line. Everybody's rattling off the psukim. Now it comes my turn. I don't know what to do. I'm like a deer in the headlights. The coin is feeding me every word. It's taking me forever. People are losing patience. Everyone's looking over their shoulders to see what's happening. It's very embarrassing. I'm not showing up next year. I'm not going to do this again. Says the Gemara, Nimnu milahavi. People stopped reading Bikurim because it was so humiliating for them. So I'm not interested. Forget it. Says the Gemara, Chazal were misakein a new idea. And what is that? Regardless of your background, regardless of how great you might be, regardless of how well you know how to read a Chumash, the Kohen told you each word. So that we would not be Mavayish Misha any Odeh. So that we wouldn't embarrass anybody who happened not to know. And that was the standard that we have across the board. One uniform standard that either the illiterate or uneducated who came or the ones who may have been great Hamid HaChamim, we wanted to make sure that nobody would ever be flustered, nobody would ever be embarrassed. And that was the way around it. This is why at a wedding, by the way, the Masada Kedushin always says, Harei at Mekudeshesli, you think the chassan doesn't know how to read the words? The answer is, there are going to be some chassanim who don't know how to read the words. And that is why the Masada Kedushin always says the words to the chassan in order not to embarrass somebody in one situation that may not be able to do it on their own. This is where it's learned from. And we find many examples of this through Chazal, where we try to have some kind of uniform standard for everyone as not to embarrass the individual who may have done things a little bit differently. So for example, the Gemara says in Masechus Tainus Chavav that on Tuba'av and on Yom HaKippurim, those were the two days that were singled out for Shiduchim, which sounds like an interesting concept, that everybody would go dating on Yom Kippur. It's an interesting break they had in the middle of Davening. Everybody would go outside, and the Gemara describes very beautifully what those dating scenes look like. So the Gemara says that the women would get all dressed up and they would try to ingratiate themselves to the men who were coming out of shul. I don't know exactly where this took place, but that's what it seems. And then the Gemara says it became very problematic because there were some who came with very beautiful clothing because they were able to afford it. And there were men who were obviously going to be attracted to them. And it took away the opportunity from those who may not have had the same kind of clothing, who could not afford that. And therefore the Gemara said they stopped this custom and they said everybody has to use borrowed clothing. Everyone went out in the same kind of clothing and they had to be borrowed. This way nobody was ever able to judge another person by what it is that they were wearing. Don't look at the externals. You should look at the internals of a person. A beautiful Gemara. But once again, what you find here is that we do have a great sensitivity to making sure that there is a sense of uniformity. That we have the same standard for everyone in our community as not to make anyone uncomfortable. Which is why the Gemara says in Masechus Moed Katan as well... Sounds like a strange custom, but the Gemara says that every day of Shiva, when somebody used to sit Shiva in the days of Chazal, they would bring multiple cups of wine. The Gemara says 10 cups of wine a day to the other. And that's why the Gemara says, Lo Wine was made to take away the pain, to pay, take away the anxiety, to take away the feelings of hurt that an individual who's going through trauma or loss is feeling. And they used to come into a Shiva home with Ten cups of wine. Now, says the Gemara, what kind of cups did we bring? Well, it depends how wealthy you are. If you had a lot of money, we would come in with beautiful gold and silver cups for you. And if you were from the more simple parts of the society, we would come in with some plastic cups filled with wine. And the Gemara says it became very embarrassing because basically nobody wanted to sit Shiva anymore. 
the entire community has to know my socioeconomic status when I'm sitting Shiva. That's very intrusive. It's very invasive. It's, it's a private matter. It's nobody's business. But when I'm sitting Shiva, everybody has to find out, oh, they're using the gold cups, the, the silver cups. Are they having the wood? Are they having the plastic? It became very uncomfortable. So the Gemara says we made one uniform standard. This way, nobody will be uncomfortable. So this seems to be a recurrent theme that Chazal were very sensitive to, with one exception. The one exception is Bikur. And what is the exception there? So the Gemara tells us what the exception is. The Gemara describes when he had a wealthy farmer who came to Yerushalayim with his Bikurim, he would present it in a beautiful silver basket. He would drop off his fruits and then he would take his basket home. Then the Gemara says if he had a poor farmer right behind the rich farmer, the poor farmer would show up with whatever he could afford. And what was that? Some kind of wicker basket. That was the best he could do. And he would show up and give his basket filled with fruits and the Gemara says that the Kohen used to keep the basket. So the Mepharshim asked, how does that make sense? Suddenly we're not concerned about people's feelings. Suddenly we're not concerned about the sensitivity of having a long line of farmers that are all waiting to do the same mitzvah. And I happen to be in the back of the line of one rich farmer after another who's coming with a beautiful basket, a beautiful arrangement. And I'm the one who comes, Nebuch, with my little wicker basket. I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I'm hiding it in my jacket. I don't know what to do. Nobody's afraid for my feelings. Nobody's concerned about my sensitivities. How come suddenly we don't find this uniformity that we do find by many other mitzvahs HaTorah? Why is this not a concern? And not only that, why is it that the wealthy farmer who shows up with the silver basket, the Kohen then gives the basket back, and yet the poor farmer who shows up with his wicker basket, the Kohen doesn't only keep the fruits, but also keeps the basket. So the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. How can that be? Why is that the case? There are a number of answers given. I want to focus only on one. The Malbim, one of the great Mepharshim on Chumash in the 1800s. The Malbim writes in the mitzvah of Bikurim. He writes in his commentary on Chumash. Amazing. I'm going to read you his words. Says the Malbim, there is something categorically different about these two individuals who come to drop off the Bikurim. The Derechani, what happens, says the Malbim. You have a poor farmer who knows that in a month from now, He's going to have to travel to Yerushalayim to bring his Bikur. The problem is, I don't have any money to spare to buy a basket. So what am I going to do? How am I going to get my fruits there? I'm going to hitch a ride. I'm going to tramp there somehow. But I still need to bring it in something. But I can't afford to buy something to bring it in. Says the Malbim, so what does he do? Every night when he comes home from work, as he's falling asleep, he sits there and he starts weaving a wicker basket as best as he can. And he falls asleep. The next day he comes back, does a little bit more. Over the next month, he comes up with his own basket that he made with his own two hands. <coughs> Writes the Malbim. Let's contrast him with the individual who shows up in the Judaica store and buys the most beautiful gold or silver basket to bring to the Beis Hamikdash for their Bikurim. Ask the Malbim, who does the Ribbona Shalom actually appreciate? So yes, Hidr Mitzvah dictates we should come with gold and silver. But who does the Rebona Shalom care about? He doesn't care about your gold and silver. Ba'avur shetarach says the Malbim, because I was willing to work on it and to go through difficult labor, tiresome labor every night to invest in myself to make this basket, says the Malbim, not only do we show our appreciation and accept you in the Beis Hamikdash, 
Not only do we tell you, don't be uncomfortable to stand behind the wealthy farmer. We don't care about his basket. It means nothing to us. You have nothing to be ashamed of. You have nothing to be uncomfortable about. We show you how much we value your contribution more than somebody else because the coin says this we're going to keep in the base of Nikdash. Your gold and silver you can take home. We don't need it. Your wicker basket is the most valuable item we have here. And that's what stays behind. The coin values that gift more than any other. And the coin chooses to keep that gift in the base of Nikdash. Because that's what the Rebona Shalom values. And you have nothing to feel uncomfortable about. Yes, are there different standards of how we present our Rikurim? There are. But whose standard is most valuable? Yours. Because you are the one who invested. Anybody remember when they used to make on Hanukkah the wicks that we had to put in ourselves? I happen to be a big mafunak. I hate getting my hands dirty. I just don't like it. Your hands smelled for weeks after you used to prepare the wicks with the oil. We don't do that anymore. I mean, most people don't do that anymore. Correct? Some people? I don't know. Maybe not. In Israel, people still do that? When I say this in America, everyone says, yes, yes. But here, I guess not. So, bad example. Let me give you an example of what you're not missing in America. Do you know that in Gourmet Glot, which is our supercell, you know that in Gourmet Glot by us, they sell before Pesach. I'm not exaggerating. Now the salt waters, that was an old one. Yes, they sell salt water. They sell 10 wrapped up pieces of bread. I'm not joking. They sell 10 wrapped up pieces of bread before Pesach that you don't have to bother to do it on your own. Now the crazy thing is that people actually buy it. Not that they sell it. It's crazy that people buy this. But I always think when I go shopping before Pesach and I see the salt water that's made for you, like a pitted pomegranate, at least I understand. But the salt water, you can't make your own salt water and you can't figure out how to wrap 10 pieces of bread in your own. Mrs. Clint, do you miss this? Not at all. You made the right decision. So what does the Rebona Shalom value? What does he value? And I sometimes feel we're missing with all of these quick fixes and with all of these opportunities for us to do things so easily, we're missing that element of Ba'avur Shatarachba, we've never seen a person who works hard on the wicker basket and presents their hard work because nothing's hard. We don't have to do it that way anymore. And that, says the Malbim, is what we need to remember is that that is the greatest value in the eyes of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We daven every day. I know I said 10 minutes ago I was going to finish. I'll really finish now. We daven every day to Kabbish Shofar Godal L'Chayr means different things to different people at different points in Jewish history. But when you see the tragedies that so many are living through, and you think, it's real. It's very real. And if, even if you never really believed that Mashiach was so important, or that Geula was so much of a focus of your life, who is not focused and yearning for a geula, for trias and mason, for a unified, beautiful, utopian society that we look forward to having once again. But what does it mean when we say, So the Medrash says, it would seem, if you're describing a shofar gadol, it must be that there's also a shofar kata. 
Otherwise, he wouldn't call it the big shofar if there was no little one. So the Medrash wonders, what's the shofar gadol? And what exactly is the shofar katan? What are these two? Says the Medrash, the shofar gadol is a reference to the shofar of Avram Avinu by the Akedas Yitzchak. As we find, Avram Avinu finds an isle, Nechaz Basvach, and he goes and he sacrifices it. That's the shofar gadol that's going to bring Cherusena, that's going to bring Mashiach. What's a shofar katan? Says the Medrash, that's the shofar. Don't get too carried away. That's the simple, small shofar that the Rebona Shalom blew on the occasion of Maimon Arsini. Come on. It's not so important. Now, I would have said it's hafuch. I would have said it's the other way. The shofar that the Rebona Shalom blew at Maimon Arsini, that's something that was once in a lifetime, once in the history of the Jewish people, that was blown by the Rebona Shalom himself. Can you imagine if they put it up for an auction? It's priceless. How much would you pay for such a thing? The shofar of Amram Avinu is also pretty amazingly precious, but nothing close to the shofar of HaKadosh Baruch Hu by Arsina. So what does it mean that the shofar gadol is Avram Avinu's shofar? And that's what's going to bring Lechei Rusein. And the answer is, what brings Geula is our investment. What brings Geula is the shofar gadol of Avram Avinu. By Arsina, the Rebona Shalom did everything. We were passive participants. We did nothing. That doesn't bring Geula. Shofar Gadol Cherusenu is the Rebona Shalom looking at us and asking, what are we willing to sacrifice? What are we willing to do? How hard are we willing to work? How much are we willing to invest of ourselves physically, spiritually, emotionally, in every way to bring a Geula? That's what brings Geula. That's what the Rebona Shalom values. And that is what the Malbim writes, is what is so uniquely special about this Mitzvah Bikurim and I think so relevant to the sacrifice that all of you continue to make every single day. The Shofar Gadola Cheruseinu, I know Jen gave a lot of credit to the Jews in America, and they deserve some credit, but they do not belong in the same stratosphere as people who are living very different kinds of lives with astronomically different kinds of sacrifices that all of you are making. Yes, we don't sleep well at night, when we know the horrors of what comes out of Gaza every single day. We don't sleep at night when we know that there are chayalim whose parents are terrified for their safe return. We don't sleep at night when we know that there are hostages. We don't sleep at night knowing that all of you are living in panic and fear. We are not sleeping well, but my not sleeping well does not compare to your not sleeping well. And what brings Geula is when a person is willing to show, I don't think the Jews in America can say that they are anywhere close to the struggle and to the passion and to the understanding and to the tremendous and just absolutely incredible investment of everything that you have, which we hope will bring and will usher in our Geula. And that is what we daven for every day. We should have the opportunity to experience that unbelievable reality. We should be zochet to Rufua for all those who are in need of it. We should be zocha to a Yeshua. I shouldn't say for all of those, but for all of us. We all need a Refua. We all need a Yeshua. We all need a Geula. And the way that we are mispala for this is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu should blow the Shofar Gadol. He should realize the sacrifice that we are all making. He should realize each person in their own way is doing everything they can, going way beyond what is the normal expectation of any of our families or any of us as individuals. We hope that the Rebona Shalom will recognize that 
will appreciate that and that he will bring us to the opportunity of Shofar Gadol Lecherusenu Bimheira Viamenu Amen Amen. Amen.